This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Plurtoast. Today is September 26, 2019, and this is episode 157. Plurtoast is the BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. And most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash Thank you to our new and longtime patrons for your support. Editing services are provided by Tortado Productions. I'm Scott Delundabom. And I'm Erin Rennie. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, welcome back. It's your third appearance, I think? Uh, maybe second or third. I think the last time I was here, we were talking about Me Too, which yes. feels like a while ago. It was a while ago. And then you're, I think I saw on our first live show way oh, back Oh, that's when. right. Yeah, the live show. That was fun. Yes. On today's show, we'll be talking about the latest in the election, the upcoming climate strike, and round off with a few stories. Politoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN, all lowercase, for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Moving on to our first segment, the election. Yeah, we're about halfway through the campaign. What do you think so far? This feels like the longest campaign ever. Really? Weirdly enough, even though I know last one went on for like three times as long, but it's, I think it's, it's this just the constant drip, drip, drip of not a lot of substance really there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you also, know. On, sorry. Go ahead. I just say, also I'm on Twitter more than the last election, so I think I'm feeling it a little more. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's only been two weeks, and I'm finding it it pretty refreshing to know that there's only two more weeks to go. Uh, But uh, I think the last federal election I lived through was the U.S. federal election. I was living in the States at the time, and that just seemed to go on forever until it wasn't on anymore, and then it was awful. And so, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm feeling very grateful that our election periods are so much shorter here in Canada. Yeah, no, no two-year election cycles or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody sort of runs out of attention after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last year, or last time with the, what, three-month election, that, I think most people were pretty glad when it was finally over. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, love democracy and everything. It's really great that we get the, the chance to have these kinds of considered dis- uh, decisions, but after a while, you want to get back to your life, right? Yeah. So interesting polls have been coming in. Uh, looks like the Liberals and the Conservatives are neck and neck, almost completely tied. Yeah, so this is, I think, more than anything else, probably been the through line through this election so far. It's just how stable everything is, even when, you know, there's big scandals developing, like I talked about last week. It doesn't really seem to shift the poll numbers at all. Uh, so I, I pulled up the uh, from CBC's poll tracker from what they had on the 18th, when the uh, blackface scandal broke and what they have up today. And the Conservatives have moved 0.3 of a percent. The Liberals have shifted by about 0.8. The Greens and the NDP have barely moved. 
So overall, it's just been a really stable situation where you kind of have two tiers. You have the conservatives and liberals at the top, not really changing anything. And mm-hmm. then just down below the NDP and the Greens, also not changing at all. Yeah, which is surprising in a lot of ways, given that so many of these decisions are very emotional. And I, I'm sure for many people, the the blackface scandal triggered a lot of emotion, justifiably. And so, but but to look at the polls and see that it makes very little difference is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that the general conversation seems to have moved on fairly quickly. The story broke Wednesday, and I felt like by Tuesday or Monday, it was kind of already fi- at least moved down to a second-tier discussion from the the main headline conversations that kind of have dominated the media so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in some ways. That being said, if if this had happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it probably wouldn't have gotten the attention that it got now, right? This was the top story worldwide in, in many countries. And so, uh, and, and Canada doesn't get top story in, in Europe all the time. So it, it did make waves. But when it comes to people's ballot box decision, looks like it's not making that much of a difference. No, it isn't. And why do you think that is? How come this, like, what was a very troubling scandal seems to have just not really had much of an impact? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, voting is complex and, and maybe people want to get all the information about all the other factors that go into their their vote uh, and then they'll make the decision then and maybe we'll see that it did have an impact. Uh, the Prime Minister also made a very effective apology. Um, I think he modeled really good apology doing or apology making by taking responsibility uh, acknowledging the hurt that he caused and making a pledge not to do it again. And so maybe if if you were concerned about that, um, if anti-racism is really important to you, maybe uh, you saw the apology as an effective way of mitigating. I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure. So it's hard to say exactly why it's moved on. It, I mean, took, I think, about three days before the, the partisans had really settled on how they were going to talk about it. And hmm. after that... I guess there wasn't much new that was coming out to say about it, so it kind of faded a bit. And there was hints that there's going to be more photos coming out, and they haven't materialized. And I mean, as lackluster as some of the other stuff the parties have been printing out in the meantime, it's, I guess, at least new content for the media to talk about. So it's kind of caused a media turnover in, in what the story is. Right, right, yeah. But why it didn't impact polling more, it's hard to say. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, it, it certainly puts the liberals in a in a tough position because they're they're fighting on both sides. Uh, they they're trying to hold on to their more right wing voters, and they're also trying to hold on to their their more left leaning voters, and and making sure that they don't go to the NDP or, or the Greens. And so so that does put uh, liberals in a in a tough position. And and you sort of see a little bit of that. The NDP gaining point one, the Greens gaining. Um, Point four points. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that's kind of in the statistical noise. Uh, so I wouldn't I read too much into it <laughs> at all. I, I think more interesting is that the seat projection uh, shifted down by nine seats for the Liberals between that time, which uh, I think pr- might indicate that it is being felt a little more in kind of the diverse suburbs that tend to be the swing ridings. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. E- even that is hard to really pull out from this. Mm -hmm. Have you been looking at the individual seats and uh, and, and where they're going? A little bit. It's it's 
there isn't great writing level polling out there. And whenever someone does it, it's just such a small sample. You can't really get a good sure, statistical yeah, yeah. thing out of it. So I tend to not put a huge amount of stock in it, but there are definitely a few writings I'm curious to see how they'll turn out mm-hmm. uh, just because of what the situation in them is, regardless of what the overall polling's saying. Yeah, but that's probably like you're saying where this a scandal like this could really make a difference in one seat or another. And as we know from the most recent election here in BC and other elections in Canada, one or two seats can make the difference between forming government or forming a majority government. Yeah, especially because, uh, well, I don't think at any point really uh, during the electorate period so far, the Liberals have been with polling in kind of a majority government territory, but mm-hmm. it definitely will indicate how secure their minority is and and how much other party support they'll need to count on to uh, keep government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you feeling pretty confident that we're heading towards a minority government? I think that's the safe money if one was to bet on it now, uh-huh. but yeah. elections are unpredictable. I mean, I, I don't think anybody thought the liberals would completely sweep the maritime or Atlantic Canada last time and there's it's hard to say what's going to happen but uh i think the most likely outcome is a minority government yeah which all in all surprises me because the the liberals had such a strong campaign coming in the last 4 years they've had plenty of scandal but they've come out okay and they're only 4 years in worth of baggage right and so as incumbents, looking at sort of the, the tradition of the way politics in Canada goes, you should be able to form government at least another time. Yeah, I, I can't think of a time where a government has won a majority and then lost the following election. Yeah, right. They've been reduced minorities before for their second term, but mm-hmm. it's basically unheard of for a government to sweep into power with a majority and be completely out four years later. Mm-hmm. But looking at these numbers, I can't help but wonder, are the the two leading parties, the Conservatives and the Liberals, already thinking about how would they form some kind of agreement, alliance with uh, another party in order to to hold government if they were to to form a minority? I'm sure it's crossed a few people's minds in the various war rooms, but we still got several weeks left of campaigning and that is October 22nd's problem. And right now (laughs) it's all Uh about getting to that uh, ballot bots finish line on the 21st. Right, right. Well, assuming that all the parties want to win a majority government, should we take a look at uh, what they're promising? Do they want to win a majority government? Because the the promises so far seem to be pretty lackluster. You think so? Yeah. A lot of it is very much, oh, here's a boutique tax credit here, here's something else. Mm-hmm. Here's $2,000 to go camping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there Which, isn't really like that sort of grand vision or alternative vision uh, that was the, what we saw in the last election, for example, where, where Trudeau was promising electoral reform and, and legalizing marijuana and all these things that we never really thought would ever happen in Canada. Yeah, I mean, some of the second-tier parties are talking about that more, but if you were to just look at what the two main parties are talking about, mm-hmm. you'd think the most pressing problem in Canada is how to optimize boutique tax credits. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, I, I I had to laugh when I looked at some of the um, 
the tax credits that uh, the conservatives are proposing because it just feels like the resurrection of the, the Harper era. But they, uh, they tax literally regime. promising to resurrect the uh, public transit tax credit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the one that's most stuck out as the tax credit from the Harper years. But they've definitely promised to bring back quite a few things. Uh, they want to roll back the liberal small business tax changes that caused quite a stir a couple mm-hmm. years back. Yeah, overall, it's just a lot of small little things. Um, with the Liberals, the one I hinted at at the start, they announced today that they want to basically have $2,000, their grants for low-income families to go camping in national parks, which it's good for people to go to national parks, but it it's hardly really seems like the sort of grand vision of Canada that hmm. parties should be running on. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of increasing sort of equitable access to nature. I don't I don't know if, I, I have no idea if this is the best way to do that. Do you have any other details about the, the $2,000? What What is it for and how do you get to use it? Uh, there isn't much details in the liberal backgrounder they have up on their website on this beyond a couple sentences that they'd uh, help 75,000 low-income families spend up to four days at a national or provincial park every year. And it's a $2,000 bursary to help that. And they want to partner with Via Rail to make it happen. So so there's a huge oh. amount of details here, but... I, I like the way you put that, though, like the the, the boutique tax credit. Is that the, the term you use? Yes. Yeah. The, I mean, every election has to have a few of these, these sort of like tangible good things that the voter can associate with that party or that promise, right? Yeah. It's, it's really hard to to sort of work out like, okay, uh, this climate target is going to benefit my family how exactly? But but this specific thing, the transit tax credit, the the camping benefit, like those are things that people can can sort of grasp. Yeah, the, the conservatives during the Harper years were really the master at micro-targeting mm, different mm-hmm. constituencies. And from the looks of it, the liberals have learned to do the same thing. Hmm, mm-hmm. What about the the emphasis on pharmacare in in all of these platforms? I see a lot of the parties talking about pharmacare. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, it's one of those uh, promises that gets rolled out pretty much every election. So honestly, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense policy wise to not include pharma coverage in our healthcare system. So I'm sure, but I, I don't know. I, I get pretty cynical looking at it just because of how long this has been a staple promise in campaigns. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the liberals might have even been promising back uh, when Trudeau's father was running. Really? It, yeah. Huh. It's definitely a Trichen era promise. So mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty venerable at this point. And whether or not we'll see it I think is up for debate. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that Every party is promising something. Well, actually, I don't know no, if the, the conservatives, conservatives haven't. Conservatives aren't, but liberals, NDP, and Greens are all talking about pharmacare. And Although there may be a, a tax credit for uh, prescription medicine in there somewhere oh, that I haven't sure. seen. But <laughs> right, right, which only benefits you if you're if you're paying taxes, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, I mean, your point about this being a, a, a long time promise of all the parties is is an important one because it sort of speaks to how complicated it is to implement something like this. But it obviously appeals to people because otherwise it wouldn't be such a cornerstone of all these different platforms. Yeah, well, well, no one likes to spend money on uh, life-saving medication, so it makes sense why it would be a thing the uh, all parties want to promise. 
Yeah, and potentially could save the healthcare system in the long run, right? If if people are getting the treatment they need, then they they don't end up in the hospital mm-hmm. or staying home from work or doing doing other things that they need to do in order to afford their drugs. Yeah. Uh, and this time there is some indication the liberals are a little more serious about it because they, they were doing some work pre-election mm-hmm. on setting up a commission to look into it, uh, starting to allocate some money in the past, previous budget. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was enough to get things rolling. Yeah, it, it seems like the complexity here is in working with all the different provinces and their different healthcare systems. Yes, and whether or not the provinces want to sign on. Right, right. You know, with Doug Ford, who Justin Trudeau loves to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, that they might have trouble establishing a new social program in, say, Ontario or Alberta right about now. Right, right. I was reading about how uh, the Greens have had their pharmacare, their, their whole platform, I think, costed out by the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, yeah, that came out earlier this week. Uh, wasn't a great review from the uh, PBO, this Apparently a bunch of accounting errors and it wasn't well uh, sourced and where they're getting their uh, revenue projections from and a few things like that. Yeah, it was it, the, the headline that sort of stood out for me was under the green plan, you would pay more for sugary drinks and there would be a tax on financial transactions, but you would pay nothing for tuition or um, for, or pharmaceuticals, which I think probably for most people would feel like a fair trade. But the the headline that the, whatever article I was reading was just something like green pharmacare plan will cost $26 billion in year one. So, and, th- and that just feels like a big number for people, right? Yes. I'm trying to recall what the research shows on tats and sugary drinks, but if I recall, it's not actually a huge disincentive for people in terms of cutting down their consumption when it's been tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's an open question on how effective that's going to be. Well, it depends what you're, what you're trying to accomplish, right? If you're just trying to bring in revenue, then it's probably a good thing that people aren't going to change their purchasing habits because then you have a steady revenue stream. Yeah, I guess so. But if you, if you want to save people's teeth and prevent cavities, then, then you're right. Yeah, maybe not the best yeah, approach. Yeah, or obesity. <laughs> right, right. What do you take of, um, or what do you make of the Parliamentary Budget Office re- uh, costing out the different platforms this time around? I, I think it's a really good step. I'm glad the Liberals brought it in. It'd be great if they actually used their own plan to cost these out. Yeah, been right. <laughs> pretty reluctant to so far for reasons that I can't quite figure out. It'll, maybe there were the numbers don't add up or something. Um, but yeah, no, it's great. It avoids the complicated on figuring out how much something's going to cost, having to trust uh, something that some uh, election staffer worked up overnight or something. And it provides just, a, I think, a lot more clarity and reassurance to people. I remember uh, last election, the, the NDP took a pretty big hit when they put out a very uh, incomplete financial plan on how they were going to balance the budget. Mm-hmm. And... Well, it wasn't what ultimately cost them the election. It, I think, definitely hurt them with the more centrist, uh, budget-minded people that they couldn't explain how they were going to it balance the budget, uh, not raise taxes, uh, and promise a whole bunch of new spending. Mm-hmm. So ha- having someone independent to actually look at that and, and be able to play it all out there, I think, really helps. But what about the fact that it's not mandatory and parties can opt out? 
well, I'm not sure it should necessarily be a mandatory thing that everything has to be run through there. Parties don't want to use a free service. I, I don't really see why they should be forced to, but they, they definitely do take a hit about it. And yeah. the liberals have, it's been pointed out a lot that the liberals are not putting their own platform through. And how much that ends up weighing on voters' minds, well, it's up for the voters, but... Yeah. Um, do do you see yourself, uh, or do you see other voters wanting to to go and look at all these platforms costed out to I mean, help I, you make your decision? I will be looking through all of that stuff, uh-huh. but I, I'm also a huge nerd about this stuff, right. so I'm not sure how much everybody else is going to look through. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the average voter spends several hours on research for a lot of their votes. I I wouldn't think so because then we wouldn't have those secure seats, right? Yeah. <laughs> we we would have a lot more um change in in our elections year to year. Yeah, like I like I said before, I, I feel like a lot of this a lot of our our political decisions are made based on emotion. And so I think it's awesome that voters can now go to the parliamentary budget office and have this sort of transparent third party costing things out and seeing what it's going to look like for the federal budget. At the same time, does that change people's behavior? Probably not a lot of people. No, probably not. Uh, So earlier in the week, uh, actually their first kind of post-scandal trying to talk about something else, the Liberals House have promised to ban military-style assault rifles, as well as give uh, cities the power to ban handguns, which is an odd delegation of criminal law to the cities. Constitutionally, all that power rests with the federal government. It's very rare for the federal government rather than, say, provinces who actually have control over cities to delegate their powers directly to cities. Yeah, that is an interesting way to put it because it, it almost it almost seems like they're, they've got a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. Do, do, do we have an issue of, of a lot of legal handguns in cities right now? It's the legal ones, no. And Canada's gun control system is fairly strict, especially when it comes to handguns right. or the uh, assault rifles they're talking about. They, they, for example, want to ban the AR-15, which mm-hmm. uh, in Canada is a restricted weapon. So it has a whole list of uh, requirements. You basically can't take it out of your house except to go with a specific authorization from the government to a shooting range and back home. There's a whole bunch of additional reg- regulations around storage right, yeah. and stuff. So it's... We generally have a pretty good gun control system here. Stuff does occasionally slip through the tracks, but it's usually not the people who have lawfully acquired a gun like that and go through the, the whole system, which takes months and everything that, that generally caused the problems. And yeah, I'm not sure if just giving cities the power to ban handguns, which is going to be hard to enforce anyway at the city level, is really the, the best use of resources compared to, say, increasing uh, police and border resources to keep illegal guns out from the states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah. I, I guess what's interesting about this approach of of giving powers to the cities is it addresses the, the issue around firearms in Canada where maybe you have a legit re- reason to have a, a firearm if you live in a rural setting and you are a hunter or you need to keep the bears out of your chickens or whatever, versus city dwellers who who generally don't have a, a 
particularly important reason to own a hand a, a firearm. So, so, so that's that's sort of one way of of like slicing that that political dilemma. But like you said, there's all sorts of other issues with with this problem, and it, and it, and it all almost doesn't really feel like. It does. Like it feels like it, the yeah, issue. It, it's like you were saying. One of those things that I think resonates more emotionally, especially with city mm, dwellers. Yeah, yeah. And on the flip side, it's an issue that really resonates in the rural areas as well. On uh, just from the other perspective, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be mm-hmm. a. I'm sure we'll be a vote getter. I'm just not sure it's going to be a huge policy. Sure. Way. Yeah. But people are concerned about crime and public safety and. Um, the uh, these announcements were made on the Danforth, Danforth in in Toronto, right? And right. and people are still reeling from that attack, and so sort of it speaks to the concern of Canadians. Hard to say whether this is really going to um, allay that concern. Mm-hmm. So I think those are kind of the the headline pieces from the Liberals over the past week. Uh, so let's move on to the Conservatives. I think the biggest thing they did this week to make a splash was talking about removing the stress tests for mortgages as well as reversing the decision to cap the amortization period at 25 years and they want to boost it up to 30. So uh, for the people who don't know, the stress test basically, in order for a bank to give you a mortgage, you have to show that you can weather uh, increases in interest rates, maybe a decrease in income. I'm not sure all the factors that go into it, but it's basically a if the situation changes, are you still going to be able to make your payments rule? And they want to roll that back. Yeah, this was a really fascinating uh, announcement by uh, Andrew Shear because in some ways he, or he's proposing to, to take away uh, protections that were put in by the Harper government. And so this is a, a place where he's diverging from um, bringing back Harper-era policies. Yeah, the, the 25-year mortgage was a uh, Jim Flaherty uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah policy mm-hmm. that that uh, followed on from the the subprime mortgage mortgage crisis and and two thousand eight and the the recession that that we all experienced back then. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, this is built to make housing more affordable, but in a lot of cases, I, I think it's going to just end up stretching people a bit further. It's especially in cases like uh, Vancouver here, where. The problem generally isn't how much mortgage you can get. It's the fact that there just isn't enough housing to really go around. And if you, you just pump more money into the market, it's going to boost prices up and not really make things more affordable. Sure. And and, and not just stretching people, but putting them in an even more vulnerable position where they may be in a place where the size of their mortgage loan is bigger than the value of the property that they just purchased. And what happens if, uh, you know, there's a slight change in the market and they can no longer sell, but they've got this huge loan that they have to pay back? Yeah. So I, I think the stress test is probably actually the one that really should stay place and not be removed. I think th- there are cases where I think a 30-year mortgage can actually make a lot of sense, but that's only if you're in a spot where you can already afford a 25-year one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you just use the extra cash flow to invest elsewhere. It can actually make financial sense to have a longer term. But that's only for the people who have the financial discipline to already, uh, who can A, afford it a shorter mortgage anyway, and B, will have the discipline to invest the, the spare cash, which is not every mm-hmm. family by, by a long shot. It's not, also not an affordability 
fits in that case. Right, right. It doesn't really help you if you live in an urban area where, you know, yeah. even getting into the housing market is out of reach. Or if you're if you're in a in a situation where you don't ever expect to be able to to purchase a home. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this, I think, is it ties very closely to the whole conservative slogan this time around. It's time for you to get ahead. Like it's, it's very much about you and your household financial interests. It's not. It's not so much about the community. So the stress test. The the purpose of the stress test is to make sure that the the new home buyer can manage any change in federal interest rates. Right. Yeah. And so by proposing to eliminate that, what Shear is doing is is almost tying his own hands and his ability to adjust interest rates were he to form government. Uh, well, well the, no, not really, because the, the Bank of Canada is the independent. The Bank of Canada does, yeah. Yeah, they, they're completely independent. The prime minister has no ability to adjust interest rates, and sure. nor, nor would we want him to have that ability. Definitely, definitely. But, but it, it also, I think, gives the Bank of Canada pause when they would go to adjust it. Exactly, because if you've got all these people who wouldn't be able to manage a, a change in interest rate, then uh, there's this huge disincentive to adjusting them or in just adjusting the the interest rate because you might put a whole portion of the population into bank- bankruptcy. And so it puts it puts the federal government in a vulnerable position as well. And I don't know why you would want to do that if you were hoping to become prime minister. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense on a policy ground, I don't think. Yeah. Anyway, any other uh, conservative promises you wanted to look into? Well, uh, today they announced they wanted to launch a judicial inquiry into SNC-Lavalin. Mm, mm-hmm. Keep beating that drum, although... It makes I, sense. Just, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> I've just struck it by how ineffectively they've been able to beat it. They, oh, they've yeah. talked about it a lot, but I, I don't think Andrew Shear's really been able to effectively make the case on why it was so bad. Yeah, and you know, that... What's the other scandal that Trudeau's the the no, island? No. Oh, the Aga Khan? The Aga Khan family vacation thing. Yeah, like he's, the helicopter ride and everything. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. So the conservatives have been trying to attach this scandal to Trudeau, these two scandals. And I, don't, I, I get the sense that they have trouble explaining why the scandal is bad. Oh, yeah, that, that that's absolutely sense? the case, yeah. They, they, they'll keep just saying it's bad, but mm-hmm. never really lay out for Canadians why it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they just don't have the, I don't know if it's not the the instinct, the talent, or what's missing there for them to do it, but they, they need someone to basically prosecute the case on SNC-Lavalin in the public sphere, and they don't. They just have someone who just says, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, mm-hmm. without really telling Canadians why it is so bad and why they should care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get the sense that like Canadians have a really strong sense of fairness and they don't like it when certain people who don't have to play by the rules or somebody gets to jump the queue and and any kind of narrative like that around a politician will sink them. And in in this case, the, the opposition hasn't been able to tell that story. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So, like, just yeah, I'm not sure what they're they hope. Well, I, actually, I know what they hope to achieve. I just don't think they're going to achieve it mm, with mm-hmm. this promise. And then also, uh, the other big announcement was changing the small business tax, as we hinted at that earlier in the segment. Right. Uh, so I think it was 2017. The Liberals uh, brought in a bunch of new tax changes around small businesses, uh, particularly around 
dividends to family members and right. what could be and how those were taxed. So mm-hmm. before, if you had a small business, you could uh, give out dividends to family members at a very favorable tax rate. And because they probably weren't making as much as the main business owner so that they'd be taxed less. Um, Globus brought in, brought in a huge backlash from business owners. Uh, they pushed through it, but it was pretty rocky times for the liberals at that point. And now they're looking to go back and change it, the conservatives formed government. And uh, this had to do with doctors, Doctors right? were a big one, yeah. Yeah, doctors. Who, who had their medical practices incorporated and then would uh, distribute dividends to their wives and other family members. Uh-huh, right. Who, who weren't getting paid doctor salaries, so got tasked at a significantly lower rate. Right, right, right. So I seem to recall the liberal government at the time called this uh, closing a loophole yes. for the wealthy. And so would you say, are, are the conservatives proposing here to open up a loophole again? Uh, well, I think the people who took advantage of it would quibble with where, whether it was a loophole. And a lot of the backlash at the time was about people who thought the liberals were labeling them cheats. Right. So I'm not sure it's that useful to go into whether or not it's a loophole, but uh, most of the economists I, I pay attention to follow, they, they all seem to think it's a good idea to keep the policy in place. So I don't really have a, or I, I just it just doesn't make any sense to me why you'd necessarily want to go back and change it. But I can see why the conservatives see uh, uh, votes in doing that, though. Sure, so right. I can see why they want to promise that. They're also proposing to... Uh, uh, hold an inquiry into money laundering in Canada. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was announced. They they want to, I think, follow a fairly similar approach to what BC is doing. Mm-hmm. David Eby, our attorney general here, came out and said, yeah, he thought that was a good idea. Happy the conservatives were talking about that, which is probably the only time David Eby and, the, and Andrew Shearer right. agreed on anything. <laughs> yeah. What about the NDP? What do you make of their platform so far? Um, yeah, so the big one I want to talk about here was earlier in the week, they promised to give provinces a pipeline veto. They've since kind of walked that back a bit, but basically let provinces decide for themselves whether any federal projects would go through uh, their province. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it seems in line with a sort of general direction of discourse around consultation and, and local control. But also... At the same time, though, a huge reason we have a federal government is to resolve issues that affect the entire country and and uh, multi-province questions, such as infrastructure that crosses provincial boundaries. So it doesn't really make a a huge amount of sense in the how government should work in Canada to let individual provinces decide whether or not national projects go ahead. Right, yeah. And the, the, the pipeline is a really uh, emotional issue for a lot of people. But if you were to strip out the details on the specific uh, project in question and just look at a should uh, subnational governments decide national policies, it doesn't make a, a mm-hmm. lot of sense on that front. And I'm, there's stuff in the NDP platform that is about infrastructure that crosses provincial boundaries. Would, you know, uh, if Doug Ford threatened to veto a... I think that the NDP have high-speed rail in their stuff. If they threatened to veto a high-speed rail project, would a Prime Minister Singh be okay with that? 
And it's not clear. Yeah, it raises all sorts of questions. And does it seem to you like uh, a promise that someone would make if they don't really expect to be governing in I two weeks? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just no prime minister wants to give up that power. Sure, yeah. But it's a good way to get votes to, well, try and be prime minister. But uh, yeah, if by some miracle the NDP managed to form government, which is highly, highly unlikely at this point, I think we'd see that one walk back. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it, it's, uh, I think in the case of the pipeline, I don't know about in Quebec, but in BC, a lot of what upset people about it wasn't just that it's a pipeline and there's environmental concerns and uh, the whales and everything, but also it was done without adequate consultation First Nations were not adequately consulted. The The local community is really, really upset about it. And then there was this huge purchase. Like, there was this huge $4.5 billion spend from the federal government without any, like, they didn't run on that. They didn't ask anybody. There was no referendum. And so so why do some things go to referendum and some things don't? Well, I mean, ideally not much goes to referendum because, <laughs> as Brett said has shown, it's actually a really bad way to govern a lot of questions with right. direct democracy is, yeah, there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- there's a reason you want to pay people a lot of money to all go to Ottawa and hash this stuff out as a full-time mm-hmm. job rather than, uh, yeah, just put it to people who, sure. well, like we said, probably don't spend a huge amount of time really drilling into the pros and cons of everything. Yeah, yeah. But also, if you make a huge spend like this and a major decision that impacts a lot of people uh, without any consultation or even, like, informing them ahead of time, you're going to get backlash. Yeah. And the Liberals, I think, rightly got a lot of backlash from buying a pipeline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was not a great purchase, I don't think. Yeah. (laughs) I think even a lot of people who were okay with the pipeline weren't necessarily thrilled about the government getting involved in it Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. With their own money. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the NDP are also uh, making promises to get involved with uh, anti money laundering um, interventions. Yeah, so they want to set up an, an RCMP unit that's dedicated mm-hmm. to this, as well as seems to make to, sense. Yeah. It seems like the only it's only the liberals that aren't making any promises on money laundering. Yeah, they, they haven't really talked about it much, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm yeah, I'm not really sure to read into that at all. Anything else that stands out for you on the NDP platform? Well, they do want to convert all public transit vehicles to electric by 2030, which mm-hmm. strikes me as fairly ambitious, although I don't know what a typical fleet lifespan is for public transit. Would you happen to know? <laughs> I don't happen to know, but uh, probably depends on on what, what it's driving, right? Like yeah. what kind of route it's driving, how much usage it's oh, yeah, getting. Like, I, I know the buses <laughs> that go up to SFU get absolutely shredded from that, and they have a lot less lifespan. But yeah. Yeah, replacing an entire fleet across the country in 10 years is very ambitious. For sure, for sure. But maybe ties in with a lot of other sort of NDP policies around locally sourcing vehicles and and creating jobs for auto workers. Yeah, I'm sure if you were to dig into that, there'd be a Buy in Canada Mm -hmm. clause somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so moving on to the Green Party. Um, So their main headline from this week was about drug decriminalization. Which is great, except for the qualifier that got put on the end of it, which uh, where Elizabeth May indicated that she might be willing to revisit that after the opioid crisis gets resolved, i.e. 
potentially recriminalizing drugs, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Interesting. So uh, I, I didn't read this. So did she... Was she proposing like a universal decriminalization, but only a temporary one? Yeah, that was kind of the. the uh, so she talked about, you know, that they need to decriminalize the, the the harm reduction benefits of it and everything, particularly in the context of the opioid crisis. But yeah, she had this weird caveat that left the door open to recriminalize it afterwards, which I don't really get on either a policy level or a political one. Like you. You're not going to win over the people who want decriminalization from that. Mm-hmm. They're going to be annoyed but by the hint that it might change in the future. You're really going to piss off the people who like to keep drugs illegal. So like, who is the person that that actually appeals to? And I, I can't figure out who that would be. Yeah, I mean, it It seems like we're in new territory when it comes to, to drug policy, right? And... and um that's an obvious statement. We, we have now legalized marijuana in Canada. And um, I think probably what she's getting at is you would learn a lot of things as a government body of bringing in such a radical move. And you might learn something that would make you want to recriminalize things, something. So sort of hedging her bets here. Perhaps, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That being said, lots of folks have, have pointed out that the criminal element is only aggravating the, the opioid crisis. And so you have to solve this public health issue first to make that the most important piece and then worry about the, the criminal aspects secondary. Yeah, and I do think, especially post-legalization of marijuana, that the public seems to be more uh, willing to entertain decriminalization Mm-hmm. As an approach, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's hard to say exactly what shifted, but I do get the sense, although I don't have any actual opinion polling on it, that mm-hmm. it's a more accepted approach. I get the sense that this is a place where there's a lot of diversity of opinions across the country. This is one of those things that attitudes are very different here on the West Coast versus. Yeah, this might be just my Vancouver bubble, uh, right? Talking to. <laughs> Green Party also talking a lot about pharmacare, of course, and um, what else? Pipeline projects, a lot they, of they, interesting. Yeah, they, they, they no doubt. Well, yeah, they they want to cancel it as one would expect from the Green Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are also talking about putting in a financial transaction tax, which is interesting. It's, it's an idea that gets floated every now and then. I think it was a might have been 0.5%. I don't have it right in front of me here, but... Yeah, it was yeah, 0.5%. 0.5%. Yeah, it's basically a very small tax on every financial transaction. Mm-hmm. So that's not a sales tax. That's, that's not a sales tax. Uh, that's like when you do a uh, stock trade or something. Okay, okay. So is this something that is going to concern people in, in the business field, or is it like everyday household expenses also when you transfer, you know, $30 to your roommate? Usually, uh, these have a, a minimum cap, like 10,000 yeah. most proposals. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it would mostly affect Bay Street. Uh, the Dream Party website doesn't actually say. Uh, it does list 0.2% as the rate, and it suggests it would be modeled after France's system that they have in place. Hmm. It's interesting. I could see in Canada's case, it would just probably push a lot of financial services to relocate a bunch of their operations to New York. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure it would actually be a huge gain for mm-hmm. them, uh, for here, especially to, like, I know a lot of companies are listed on both the TET sets and uh, either the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. So, yeah, yeah I, I could see it uh, here just uh, resulting in a big shift in where a lot of financial businesses set up. But yeah, it's hard to say. 
the impact of that's going to be. Yeah, you'd have to look at France and and get a sense of whether they lost any of their big financial players as a result. Yeah, well, also the EU is a lot more open, so it's been sure. re- really easy to relocate to City of London or uh, yeah, Frankfurt, yeah. I think it's the other big financial center in Europe. Right. Well, let's move on uh, to just a couple of miscellaneous stories about how the elections developed. First off, the Munch debate was canceled uh, this week after Trudeau refused to show up for it, and the debate organizers finally decided just to pull the plug on the whole thing rather than hold an event without the prime minister. Yeah, that was too bad, I thought. I mean, why not Why not have an interesting event? Even if you don't have the prime minister there, you get to hear a little bit about foreign policy from the other uh, the other players in the election. And I, I would certainly like to hear that. Um, why do you think they decided to cancel the event? Well, probably without the prime minister, it's going to be hard to get the viewership draw and everything. People want to see, I, I think, mostly how Andrew Shearer and Justin Trudeau stack up. Right. Because those are the two main people that people are considering voting for. Mm-hmm. So with one of the two major party leaders gone, it's... Well, it may be interesting for a lot of people. I don't think it's going to be quite as informative for the general voting populace. Yeah. And also won't just draw as many viewers. Right. Yeah. I I can see it from the liberals' perspective why they wouldn't be interested in participating. If you're you're the defending government— Yeah, your your incentive is to have as few debates as possible. For sure. Yeah. You you only stand to be criticized, right? And uh, because you're the only one with a recent record. Yeah. And with the— debate commission in place, it gives them a perfect opt-out. Even if it doesn't mean the only person with actual foreign policy experience won't be at the debate. Yeah, that's right. Well, Andrew Schuert's previous position was Speaker of the House, so I'm sure he did a few, like, ceremonial things with visiting dignitaries. But, yeah, he hasn't held a foreign policy role. None of the other party leaders have ever held a role in government, so. Yeah, do you, do you have a sense of, uh, you know, what their big points are on foreign policy? Uh, yeah, so I watched the McLean's debate that mm-hmm. uh, was a couple weeks ago. It's pretty much just what you'd expect from each of the parties. You know, the, the conservatives want a more robust foreign policy, one that's uh, with a better fund of military and everything, but mostly it was just a bunch of complaints about Justin Trudeau and his record and stuff. And uh, this, this country does not do foreign policy discussions very well. None of the major parties are really have serious discussions about them. In my, from my perspective, it tends to be very kind of surface level stuff. Or yeah, I don't and, and get the I do, sorry. I don't get the sense that voters are thinking about foreign policy when they go to vote. It, it's very rare. I think. Yeah, yeah it, like five, maybe five percent of voters. Right, right. Even even with all the big foreign policy things that have happened over the last four years, renegotiation of NAFTA, Paris Agreement. Um, the Huawei uh, scandal. I don't know if it's a scandal. Huawei issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, yeah, just Canada's relationship to rising China mm-hmm. should be a, a serious multi-hour discussion between the party leaders. And it's, you're just not going to see that, especially with this group. Right, right. Well, I, I, it makes sense. If you're a sitting prime minister, uh, you've got, what is it, 40 days? Four weeks, you want to optimize your time. And going yeah. to a debate where you're going to get beat up is probably not the best use of your time when you could be knocking on doors or fundraising or, uh, you know, doing whatever else you do as a campaigner. Mm-hmm. 
And finally, probably my favorite story of the election so far, <laughs> just because all the other ones have been either really boring or abjectly terrible, as last week's main one was. Uh, this one's just really funny because the Green Party is some, in some hot water over a little photoshopping they've done. <laughs> this is such a silly story. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I love it. it. It's just great. So there was this picture of Elizabeth May holding a cup that the Green Party had on some of their stuff. Now, the thing they did, though, is they went in and photoshopped the cup that uh, Elizabeth May was holding from a pla- or a paper cup to a one of those reusable cups with a metal straw photoshopped in. Yeah, and people are making a big deal out of it. There is a big spread on the National Post with the two photos side by side. Oh, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's sort of a feeling of, like, gotcha about this. Well, I, yeah, it's just because it's so absolutely inconsequential, I think. Right. Given just a lot of people, I think, some joy out of it because it's just really funny that... They went to all of this trouble to replace a paper cup with a reusable cup by photoshopping. Yeah. And like nobody would have even noticed it if it hadn't become a story. Right. Like, do, do you ever pay attention to what type of cup a politician is holding in a photo? I, I, maybe I will now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I won't be able to trust that it is the cup that the original photo contained. I don't know. Um, I mean, people are calling this fake news, but it's like the most inconsequential fake news that ever was faked. You know, like it does not matter. And yet it's something that people are really focused on and and zooming in on. And uh, I heard the interview from the Green Party, um, represented from the Green Party, and they were just like, whatever, this isn't a big deal. We just wanted to put our logo on there. Who cares? I don't think Elizabeth May was even aware this all went on. Yeah, I don't think so. He's probably, yeah, some staffer had the, the, the brilliant idea to do it or something. But mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's just, I still kind of want to know what was going through their head. Like, they, they looked at the photo and said, oh, there's no way we could possibly use this. We have to change it. Is that what was going on or something? I don't know. I mean, I mean there's, uh, you, you got to wonder about the effort and energy that goes into photoshopping a photo when you could just go and have another photo taken. Or crop it. That's what they did on a few of them. They used the crop version. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. But like at the same time, campaigns are distributed, right? There's, you've got volunteers, you've got people making decisions at the ground level and stuff like this is going to (laughs) happen. What strikes me is how people are really fast to call this fake news but all the the photographs that politicians have of themselves that are staged they're not you know genuine uh, right, yeah. activities that the that politician happened to be doing they they were entirely uh, you know manufactured events we don't consider that to be fake news and that i find troubling yeah but i i think there's it feels different to like go and edit a photo versus setting up the frame or, you know, how it's taken for some reason. And there isn't really a rational reason for that that I mm-hmm. can articulate. But yeah, at a gut level, it feels more deceptive to edit a photo after it's taken than to stage one. Yeah. But isn't that weird? Yeah. I, there isn't really a rational reason to articulate it. But, but yeah, there, there's something weird about why one feels more deceptive than the other. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, mo- most of the reactions I've seen have been some version of laughter and just, just having a good, uh, or just enjoying the, this moment of silliness in, mm-hmm. in an otherwise dull campaign. Totally, yeah. Just one last thought on on fake news. I wonder if this will increasingly be a role of elections administrators keeping tabs on on uh, a, a sort of how the the imagery that is going out there and whether it is true and um, and accurate and uh, and the, the 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 as as technology in, improves for for creating these kinds of images and video whether it's going to be the elections officer whose job it is to say, okay, that's not allowed. You can't put that out there. You you can't put that out there. Yeah, it's interesting. Like right now, it kind of works on a much more distributive level. And mm-hmm. it, well, it's hardly working perfectly. It, it, mostly of the time, it does catch this stuff. Or, and yeah. parties do take a hit when they, they get caught sure. doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the so, media yeah. sort of plays that role. Mm. I, I'm not sure there's a huge incentive. Mm-hmm. To, to make that a, a function of the government, election administrators to do. Right, right. So that about covers it for what we've got uh, in our notes to talk about for the election. Uh, is there any big takeaways you have on kind of what you're looking for and what you'll be watching uh, in the next couple of weeks as we come up to election day? Um. Well, the the big one I think is the is climate change. The role that climate change has already had in this campaign, and um, I'm sure is going to continue to have a lot of uh, re- reporters and pundits are talking about, you know, the the portion of the electorate that's made up of young people and how the environment is important to young people more so than than previous generations, and how that's a a big um, a salient issue for for youth. Um, and and millennials who are no longer youth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the elder millennials are coming up on forty now. <laughs> we elder millennials, um, and then uh, the timing is interesting. Um, Friday of this week is the global climate strike, and it, we've we've just come through a whole week of climate action um, that is being led by youth worldwide, and uh, and. Oh, I think we've seen a little bit of politicians sort of bringing that in and and trying to weave c- climate change and climate action into their their platforms. But I was at a conference recently, and somebody said, "You know, we're not going to see any serious policy action on climate change until somebody loses an election about climate change." And I don't know if this is going to be that election, but probably not going to be this election. Uh, that's that's sort of what I'm looking for. I'm I'm looking for is. Is this enough of an issue that that we're going to see significant change? Okay. Well, I think that's a good segue into our second uh, main yeah. segment about the climate strike. So you wanted to uh, talk about this one specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I just thought it was really interesting, you know— um, Greta Thunberg, who's the uh, one of one of the youth behind the climate, the global climate strike, was speaking at the UN on Monday this week, and since then, I think almost every party leader has sort of invoked her name uh, and and uh, sort of pointed to her as as uh, a reason for their their climate platform or or whatever, or in the case of Maxime Bernier, <laughs> lack thereof. Well, um, I mean, at this moment, isn't internet trolling most of his platform? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, 
the latest I heard on Maxime Bernier is he does believe climate change is happening, but isn't convinced that it's human cost. And okay. So, uh, anyway, his his whole thing is you know take out the carbon tax and um, and don't to leave it up to the provinces to address climate change. Yeah, I, I don't know. Are are you watching this? Do you think this is going to have an impact on the the polls in two weeks? Uh, the climate strike probably. I don't think it's going to have a huge impact at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical of how impactful a lot of these big demonstration or, or events end up being. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, they'll happen. You know, the politicians who support them make a big deal about it. The politicians who are kind of on the fence will say some nice stuff, but non-committal. And then things generally more or less return to normal. You know, the, the uh, protests against the Iraq war didn't stop those and a lot of a lot of the kind of big protest events, I think they're useful for kind of momentum building within the mm-hmm. organizations, but uh, as a way to really shift where the public is or or where politicians are in particular, I think the kind of slow, steady, not that glamorous work of slowly chipping away at it tends to be more impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you probably need both, right? You need... You need the activists and the organizers, but you also need the advocates from within and uh, sort of the the policy leaders doing the the technocratic work, all working in concert. Do you think Canadians are ready for major action on climate? Um, I think they were more ready they, than they were before, and there's definitely a segment that's really ready. Yeah. But uh, there's actually a poll that just uh, came out, to, I think it was today or yeah. Within the last couple of days, from uh, from Ipsos, so that said that half of or most Canadians want to stop climate change, but basically half of them aren't willing to actually spend any money on stopping climate change. Which I mean, in practice, that means they they don't want to stop climate change because there's no way to go about this that doesn't involve spending some money, mm-hmm. and everybody's going to have to take a hit at some some level or another to get this problem under control. Right. Yeah. So so in this poll that you're referring to, 46% of those polled said they are willing to pay $0 to address climate change, 22% between $1 and $100, and 8% between $101 and $200. And then you've got uh, about 19% are willing to pay over $400 to, and this is an annual payment, right? I believe so. So it's it's an interesting sort of um, uh, pulse check on on how much people are willing to sort of sacrifice in terms of their own pocketbook to address a a problem that is international. I wonder though, like we're hearing more and more around this narrative that you know, like there's maybe a hundred companies that are responsible for most greenhouse gas emissions and whether it's people I, feel I, like you should I lot. have to pay if if I'm not doing most of the emitting it's not a it's a talking point I really don't like all that much because like, if you actually break down who those hundred companies are I mean they're, they're mostly oil companies and mm-hmm. a huge chunk of them are the state-run oil companies but overall like those companies don't make money by putting uh pollution in the atmosphere they make money by selling oil and that happens to pollute. But it's the end user that really drives those hundred companies to actually go to all the effort of pulling out of the ground in the process, releasing a bunch of emissions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you can point fingers at the hundred biggest companies, but 
really it's the 7 billion people all buying their products or products that use Mm -hmm. them in their supply Mm -hmm. chains Mm -hmm. that drive it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just... I don't think waving the finger at the, the hundred companies or whatever is going to solve anything or even really focuses the attention where it needs to be focused. So a lot of the parties have made a comment on carbon taxing as part of their platform, and the liberals have been trying to bring in a carbon tax federally for the last four years, <laughs> varying levels of success. Do you think that's going to be a deciding factor for, for a lot of voters? Well, the conservatives are definitely counting on it being a deciding yeah. factor. Um, I don't think it's going to actually be that big a deal. Mm-hmm. It's only four provinces are actually affected by the liberals directly because all the other ones had program in place already or, right. or yeah. put one in in response to it. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be a huge vote mover. And I think the people who are like viscerally opposed already weren't going to vote for the liberals on this one. And... Other issues are probably going to end up deciding this election. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think are the the big issues that are going to decide this election? It's. Re- I mean, I say there's big issues that are decide the election. I'm having trouble pulling out what the ballot question is going to be. Yeah. Even partway through the election. So honestly, at this point, it feels like are things generally okay enough to not bother switching governments? Really feels like where this election is situated right now, which is kind of depressing, but... I don't know. I think that's sort of the the Canadian poly way, you know? (laughs) Like, that's that's how elections tend to go. You lose them. You don't really win them. Mm -hmm. And so, I I mean, sitting government has a lot going for them. Really low unemployment. The economy's pretty decent in most provinces. Yeah, the, the, the fundamentals are, yeah. are there. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the, I think the liberals are kind of underperforming where they should be for a pretty decent economy. Hmm. Yeah. But if they lose, I don't think it's going to be because of the carbon tax. It's going to be the hit they took for SNC that they've just kind of started to try and recover from, the various other scandals and everything. Yeah. Well, and, and, then, and then having... The two parties on either side, I think, is going to be pretty tough yes. for, for the liberals. Both of them are, are, you know, neither of them are very strong, but they're they're decently strong. And that's going to be interesting. Speaking of, of Bernier, what impact do you think he's going to have on, on the conservatives? Do you think they're going to split the right? Well, if polling's any indication, not much of an impact, but it's enough that the couple percent he's polling at is enough that he might be able to siphon away just enough votes that it costs the conservatives in a few key ridings. So, yeah, I think it's going to hurt them a bit. Overall, not going to be a hugely consequential factor in the final seat count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder... Yeah, there probably be a couple seats that the conservatives don't pick up because of Bernier. Right. I, I've been wondering whether it's going to push the conservatives to the middle. Well, it hasn't yet. If anything, it's done the exact opposite of they've tried to keep as little distance as possible between themselves and the People's Party mm-hmm. because well, their incentive is they don't want someone on their flank. So if they can... Yeah. It would suck for them to lose the election uh, from their perspective, but I think it would be worse if they had a permanent party to their to one side of them. So I think they're, they've taken the calculus that it's better to push right and, and basically leave no room for Bernier mm. and gamble this election, but it leaves them in a stronger position going forward. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't know if they've gone that far right. A lot of the Tories policies are are just, you know, family pocketbook issues and they've got some environmental policy. And and so to me that's that feels like they know they have to go to the middle in order to to win this election. Yeah, they've done a bit of that, but um on some of the more cultural stuff, I, I don't think I think they've shifted back from where they were in the Harper years. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's the cultural front. I think they're they've moved the most on. Yeah. It's, you know, Har- Harper stayed away from that like it had the plague. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Shear seems to be much more willing to talk about those issues. And I, I think Bernie has been a large factor in that because if there wasn't the People's Party there, yeah, that their incentive would absolutely be to move to the center and try and pick up those mm. swing votes. Mm. Anyway, back to the climate strike. Uh, one of my big hopes for this climate strike is that it is going to, to um, motivate a lot of youth to participate in this election, no matter how they vote, that they will get, you know, s- register to vote and that they will become lifelong voters as a result of, of being uh, engaged in, in, a, in a big issue so early in their voting life. Right. Actually, that's a good point. Do, do you think uh, turnout for young voters is going to be up or down this election? I'm. I think it's going to be up. I, I okay, think that's probably uh, that's mostly wishful thinking. Um, but but yeah, you know, it, it, traditionally the youth vote has been really really low and and not doing so well, especially lately. And so I, I'm hoping that that the convergence of the climate action with the election happening at the same time is going to to just get get more youth involved in politics. Yeah, it'll be interesting. The uh, well, part of the liberal success in the last election was turning out new voters. So right. that that might have actually already set the bar bar high. It might and just the liberals aren't exactly inspiring anyone this time. So I, regression to the means probably going to kick in, and it's going to drop down to more historic levels. Hmm. Yeah. So you're thinking uh, the, the I think youth it's probably going to go down. Yeah. Right? Okay. But we'll see. We'll I mean, see. I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to be wrong on that one, but I sadly have the feeling I'm not going to be. Um, did you want to move into quick takes? Yeah. So we'll move into quick takes now with uh, one Twitch story where the BC government has won a court victory over the turn off the taps legislation that was brought in by Rachel Notley and continued to be there under Jason Kenney and in this stick that he constantly threatens BC with. Uh, So the federal court has granted a temporary injunction, which means the court case is still not finally resolved yet, but it's a pretty good sign that BC is in a pretty strong position here because you generally don't grant injunctions, as far as I know, if something hasn't actually been used yet, because this is just a rhetorical stick yet. But if they are confident enough to grant an injunction, means there's a pretty decent likelihood of success on the merits of the case for BC. This is a really fascinating uh, story. Not not for the BC-Alberta politics piece of it, but for the Alberta provincial politics. And the, the part that I found really fascinating is is just how... Uh, so, so this, this turn-off-the-taps legislation that Alberta brought in was was actually something that was passed by the NDP government under Rachel Notley, right? Yes. But she never proclaimed it into law. 
And that's sort of like that final step of turning a piece of legislation into a law. And she did that strategically. And when she lost the the premiership and uh, and Jason Kenney became premier in her uh, sort of uh, transition meeting with Kenney, she said to him, don't proclaim this bill into law. It's like your last piece of leverage over British Columbia. Uh, but it was a big part of his campaign. And so he did it, I think, like on his first day in office. And, um, and then Supreme Court grants BC an injunction, which means that they basically can't yeah, use it court. for the time being. What was federal. that? I, I don't think it was the Supreme Court. This rule was sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Federal court. So basically, the premier of Alberta has lost this this sort of tool. Well, for now, it's enjoined until the final mm-hmm. court case comes in. But sure. Yeah, it, it re- reading the tea leaves, temporary injunctions generally don't get handed out willy-nilly. It's especially when Alberta can make a pretty decent case that nobody's actually using the legislation. It just mm-hmm. powers the government to do something. Right. So do so you the, think it was a miscalculation on, on Kenny's part, or do you think he has a broader scheme in mind? Well, I mean, it, it helps him with the local politics, because like you said, it was a big part of his campaign and mm-hmm. and his whole like political story and, and narratives built around getting Alberta oil to market and everything, getting that pipeline built. Right. So a- anytime it, he is seen fighting for it, it, it helps him. And, you know, setbacks from courts is just another thing he needs, you know, just another reason Alberta needs to keep fighting and keep him elected. So, Right. Okay. So now he has another enemy that he can fight against. Yes. So do, do you have a sense of when this is going to come back? Uh, no idea. Yeah. Well, yeah, they'll probably be hearing arguments over the next couple months and, I don't know, ruling probably sometime late fall, early winter. But I'm sure the lawyers who listen to us will be happy to track me up on my way off on that. <laughs> yeah, that was a, an interesting one. Okay, well, uh, thank you everyone for joining me tonight. Hey, thanks for having me on. This was really fun. always love talking about federal politics and elections. This was great. Yeah, it was a good episode. Uh and yeah, hopefully it won't be as long before we have you back. Definitely. Happy to. Anytime. And that has been Politos. Find links to everything we talked about at politos.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash politos. If you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sergey Potnikoff. Thanks for listening.